Wolverine Podcast. Kevin Morris with you here for another episode. Today, we are going to be dealing with some listener questions. And I'm really glad to be doing this because we are jumping into a brand new study together on Teaching Thursdays, where we are going through the book Theoretical Practical Theology by Peter Van Maastricht. If you are a new listener or a new watcher, on YouTube, uh, please take advantage of this new study that we're jumping into together in systematic theology. Head over to Reformation Heritage Books and grab a copy of Volume 1 of Peter Van Maastricht's Theoretical Practical Theology. We just had our first episode dealing with uh, an introduction to the book, and we're going to be jumping into it very soon. And the reason that I mention that is because as we alternate, between Teaching Thursdays and then regular Thursday episodes such as this one, this particular episode really serves to help us understand why something like systematic theology is really helpful for us. Why it's, uh, whether it's a formal systematic theology book or if it's something like this, uh, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, which you could definitely argue is a kind of systematic theology. Either way, these kind of books are really helpful because they challenge us to give a very precise articulation of what the Bible says about something, or a whole lot of things. And the problem is, you could say what the Bible says about something, but if you contend for the argument that God's Word is without error, that God does not lie, that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. You can quickly find yourself in over your head when you have to deal with a whole lot of issues because you have to be operating off of what you gave to an answer way back when. And you don't want to contradict yourself down the road. And so having a formal confession of faith or systematic theology uh, that you obviously agree with is what the Bible says. These help us. These help us as, as guides. These help us as uh, keeping a consistent uh, formulation of answers. Now, you might not be an academic type. You might not be a student in anything other than Sunday school classes or listening intently to your pastor's sermons. But I guarantee you, at the workplace, in the home, with friends, when certain questions come up, about Bible topics, doctrines, and you're challenged or you're asked to give an answer to that kind of question, you have to be operating off of some kind of a principle. Even if you're the kind of person that rejects the idea of systematic theology, you reject the idea of really caring much of what your church's statement of faith is, you definitely reject the idea of having a confession of faith that's this thick, such as my denomination, the PCA. But you're still operating off of something in order to give an answer to what the Bible says about A, B, and C. And you don't want to contradict yourself, but if you're trying to go, you know, shooting from the hip every time you give an answer, uh, you're that much more suspect of contradicting yourself. And so these really just help us, at the very least, to uh, be challenged to be consistent to challenge to be challenged 
to give an answer that is sufficient, that is satisfactory, that interacts well with what we believe about other particular topics. Now, I keep referring to this Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms because, number one, that's what my uh, denomination for uh, elders and deacons in the denomination, that's what we adhere to, that's what you're going to hear preached from the pulpits, is theology that is in line with what the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism says. Uh, You're hearing me refer to this because this is what I subscribe to, and because I'm going to be using this as well as uh, theologians, including Peter Van Maastricht, to answer some of these listener questions that I'm going to be dealing with today, because they feed off of each other so much. Now, I'm not necessarily going to quote from these as much, but just know that what I'm doing to be able to answer these is I'm operating off of a whole lot of reading, a whole lot of study, and a whole lot of interaction with some very bright minds that have helped me make sure that the kind of answers I give are not going to, hopefully, uh, contradict one another. You can be the the judge of that, though. So, uh, here we go. Um, I'm going to deal with these kind of one at a time because uh, they feed off of one another so well. Let me read the whole thing here. And then I'll interact with them one at a time. Uh, So here's the, the first part. All angels and humans had freedom of choice. Once we are in eternity, if we still have that same freedom, what will prevent another rebellion scenario from happening again? I'll read the whole thing, and then I'll I'll deal with these one at a time. Will the tree of the knowledge of good and evil be there, or will we just remember our knowledge of sin from before, and that will keep us from sinning again? Is it that because sin and the devil were destroyed, evil no longer exists, so people in eternity won't have negative or rebellious thoughts anymore? But then Satan wasn't created as an evil being in heaven, he just chose to act on his evil thoughts over time. So will we still have freedom of choice, or how will that look? It seems like somewhat of a dichotomy. Okay, so first of all, thank you for your uh, question submission. If you have questions, we haven't done these uh, very often, uh, but if you do have questions, please uh, reach out to me, betterbiblereading at gmail.com. Send me your questions. I'll be glad to deal with them on the show uh, once I have a chance. These have kind of been brewing in my inbox for quite a while now, but there wasn't a good episode to kind of plug it in. So this is really a good test case to show why something like systematic theology or confessions of faith are helpful, because they give us the right framework of the Bible to answer things like this. All right, so let's deal with the first one. All, hu- all angels and humans had freedom of choice once we're in eternity. If we still have that same freedom, what will prevent another rebellion scenario from happening again? Okay, so the Bible teaches, certainly, that there is an element of freedom. We're not robots, uh, and neither are angels, for that matter. And there's a level of of freedom uh, that we do have as humans and that angels have as angels. And the question goes... You know, once we get to eternity, what's going to cause or what's going to stop another Genesis 3 or another rebellion of angels in heaven from happening again? What's, what's to say that this whole thing is not going to be an endless cycle for all eternity until there's potentially none of us left uh, to, make it, to make it to heaven, the final, the final run through? Uh, so 
the Bible doesn't give us explicit details as to how the uh, rebellion of angels took place, which Lucifer, Satan, was the, the, the head of that rebellion. We don't have detail chronologically. So when you turn to Genesis 1, you read all of the creation account, you make it to Genesis 3, suddenly you have this serpent that is potentially is just out of thin air, right? We don't know anything about him before Genesis 3. He's just there. But as we continue to read our Bibles, we begin to get background information from the prophets, such as Isaiah. We get detail all the way at the end of the book, Revelation, where you have very clear reference to the serpent as Satan, as the devil. And you have all of the uh, kind of background information given to us in snippets throughout the Bible so that we can understand that the fall of angels has already happened before we get to Genesis 3. Now, whether you want to situate it as basically right after uh, the end of Genesis 2 is where the fall happens, or some people will say, once you open your Bible and read Genesis 1, you have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this gets into the debate over whether the creation days were uh, literal 24-hour days, or if there's kind of a framework uh, happening where we don't have the same kind of 24-hour day pattern uh, that we have in real life. And the argument goes that in verses 1 and 2, these represent an undisclosed amount of time, so that somewhere between Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and when you get into the formal unpacking of the creation days in verse 3, that the fall of angels happens in that somewhere. Now, it's, it's very difficult to wrestle with this, and I don't even pretend to try to solve all of this for us on this particular episode. Um, I happen to believe that the creation days are uh, 24-hour days, literal, not figurative, not a framework, uh, but there certainly are people who would see a framework pattern instead of the literal creation days. Uh, but nevertheless, the reason I bring that up is because regardless of where we place the fall of angels, it's clear from the Bible elsewhere that it has happened by the time we get to Genesis 3, because the serpent is there and you have this reality of sin and rebellion. You fast forward to a book like Second Peter or Jude, which, by the way, those two books are very, very similar, very similar structure. Um, so you could go to either one of them to see this kind of thing. Uh, but in verse 6 of Jude chapter 1, we read, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That reference there speaks of the angels, the fallen angels, devils, however you want to describe them, as being, quote, kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
Now, what we see here is that although angels do have this level of freedom that they were allowed to rebel, uh, we don't understand all of the dynamics of that, but we certainly understand that it is within God's grand purpose. God has to decree it. God has to allow it to take place, and God is not reactionary. So in his big plan, um, he has this as not being antithetical to that. This is all part of his big plan, although uh, with the element of responsibility, we wouldn't say that God twisted the the arms, so to speak, of the angels and forced them to do this. The same can be said about humans as well. But the difference between humans and angels is that there is no opportunity of salvation for angels. They don't get a second chance, as it were. There is no gospel to be preached to the angels to save their souls, to redeem them. Uh, We even read in the Bible that this whole idea of salvation uh, is depicted as things into which angels long to look. They're, They're intrigued by it. They're perplexed by it because it is not something to which God has given to them. It is to mankind, those who are made in the image of God, even angels in all of their glory are not made in the image of God. The angels, you could even argue, many theologians make this point as well, the angels, the story of the angels, really helps us to appreciate the grace and salvation which God affords to us. Because everywhere you see the fall of mankind uh, first given to us in Genesis 3, and secondly, Redescribed in these later scenarios, such as the flood, such as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, such as God's overthrow of the nations and even of uh, Israel and Judah, that all of these are kind of microcosm examples of the final judgment that will take place. And yet, in all of those scenarios, God shows grace, God spares mankind. And that is grace, because it is not deserved. In all of these depictions, we see that 10 out of 10 people are guilty of the judgment that's coming, and yet God shows mercy to them. Even the angels are not all wiped out, but the ones that do rebel are all going to be destroyed. They're all kept into eternal chains of gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So God has them bound now. If you want to understand that, read Revelation 20. God has them bound now, reserved until the day of judgment. There's no second chance for the angels. There's no redemption for the angels. And because they don't get that, we should look at the fact that we have been granted salvation. Those of us who are in Christ, we have been given Uh, Not a blank slate to where we can start over in our own power, but a second chance in terms of a new life. A second chance in terms of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in us and living for Christ as a new creation. The angels aren't afforded that. And so when we look at our own scenario as one of salvation, redemption, adoption, promise of future glory, uh, we should be incredibly thankful. Now, all of that plays into the fact that, okay, what happens uh, way down the road? Does God annihilate our freedom? Well, no, the answer is certainly not. Mankind was created good. 
mankind was created in freedom, no uh, diminished aspects of our being, but because God does create us with freedom, we chose to rebel against him. God doesn't give us a ticking time bomb by giving us freedom, but he does give us the idea of operating without coercion. We're not forced to do this or forced to do that. But God does, as the Westminster Confession says, that he makes us with wills that are mutable, subject to change. We are given in, in Adam, Adam is given uh, the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but he is told to keep and tend and protect the garden. He is a figure of Christ, where Christ in the New Testament is described as our prophet, priest, and king. Adam, in the same way, is supposed to have dominion over creation as the king. He's supposed to um, stand in agreement with and promote God's word, God's command as prophet. Um, and he's supposed to be a living sacrifice unto God and ensure that his wife Eve is doing the same as priest. He fails all three of those by succumbing to what uh, the serpent says. It is not as if the, ser- the serpent tricks Adam or tricks Eve into doing something that they totally didn't want to do, but it is the fact that God makes them in a way to where they're supposed to be confirmed in their righteous judgment, confirmed in their choices, confirmed in their acts of obedience. And so that means that the way that they're made is for the opportunity of being able to choose the good, being able to respond positively. Uh, But because of that mutability, um, there's also the possibility of them not doing so. And of course, that is exactly what happened. They reject the command of God and pursue uh, destruction. They don't heed the warning that in the day that they eat of this, that they will die. This spiritual death, this spiritual separation from God is a reality, and then eventually the physical death is as well. So why do I even take the time to to deal with all that? Well, it's because in our salvation, we are freed from our corrupt nature. We are slowly but surely being remade in the image of Christ. It's not as if we don't deal with sin anymore right now. We still deal with it. But the prevailing principle in our lives is the fact that we are a new creation, that we have new desires. We are no longer subject as slaves to our distorted wills as we were outside of Christ as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. But the good news of the gospel is that once we uh, get to that last day where we are totally glorified, we're totally renewed once for all, we now have a freedom that is pure. We are now, as some would argue, made immutable, although I wouldn't want to say it that way because only God is immutable. But we are kept, though mutable, we're kept in the hand of God for all eternity because we no longer have any inclination 
to sin. And it's not as if we're actually just brought back to the scenario of the garden. It's actually that the result of what should have happened with Adam and Eve and their obedience to God is what we enjoy. So Jesus doesn't take us back to what it was like before Genesis 3. It's actually that Jesus takes us to what Genesis 3 should have been. He takes us to the conclusion that Genesis 3 should have had. And that's the good news, is that God, though we are totally free, and though we do have freedom that we aren't going to be coerced into worshiping God for all eternity, we will be doing exactly what we want to do. We will be doing what our wills desire. We will be celebrating God. We will be enjoying His presence. We will be communing with one another. And none of us will have a thought in the back of our minds, I sure wish I could do this, or wouldn't it be great if everybody here worshiped me instead? Because we will be totally purified and perfected. We will reach the pinnacle of what Adam and Eve were to reach uh, as human beings. We will be able to enjoy that. And we will be kept in that. Because God will confer us in righteousness uh, just as Adam should have been. And that is all because of what Jesus affords to us. So no, there won't be a scenario of us falling again. And though the Bible is not explicit on this point, it seems that uh, the angels uh, had a once-for-all rebellion. In other words, the angels that were foreordained to rebel did, and those who are remaining will not. Uh, there aren't going to be a, another set of angels uh, rise up uh, later again because the finality of God's judgment, of God's destruction of death, the final judgment of all of those who reject Christ and all of the fallen angels, including Satan himself, being cast into the lake of fire. And that final judgment uh, signifies the fact that that won't happen again. And so we don't know all the dynamics of the angels uh, who are uh, loyal to God, who have not rebelled, uh, in terms of, well, could they potentially want to, but then they won't. Uh, that's a, that's a, gets into a matter of speculation because we don't see. Uh, but because of the fact that they are not in that operation of, of salvation, that they don't have a will that can be renewed, or they don't have this idea of um, being able to increase or decrease in some kind of level of angelic righteousness, uh, that it seems that the Bible depicts the fact that uh, God allowed a certain amount of angels to fall, um, to go their own way, and those who didn't won't ever. And that just seems to be what the Bible has to say about that. Okay, so the next one, uh, these will be shorter. I wanted to build up that, that framework so I could deal with these uh, remaining questions um, more, more succinctly. Uh, will the tree of the knowledge of good and evil be there, or will we just remember our knowledge of sin from before, keeping us from sinning again? I heard from... Lane Tipton, uh, he is a teaching fellow at Reformed Forum. So go to reformedforum.org. Uh, this is not a, a promotion, uh, but this is just a personal encouragement for you to go there because they have excellent resources, uh, podcasts, uh, also teaching courses as well. 
And in one of Lane Tipton's teaching courses, he's talking about Genesis 1 and 2, and he mentions the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he describes them as sacramental. Now, what he means by that is, I find this to be a really helpful way to think about these, because the speculative side of us wants to say, where is the tree of life? Where is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil today? If they were there then, where are they now? Right? But this idea of sacramental um, gets us thinking about the sacraments. The sacraments are described to us as uh, being comprised of two things. uh, The sign and the thing signified. So, you have two things. Let's use um, the Lord's Supper as an example. Um, you have what the sign is, bread, wine. What's signified in the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ. So the bread and the wine are not special in and of themselves. They are, they are not supernatural. But they signify, they point to the reality which is present, which is represented in the meal, Jesus Christ himself. When we look at the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we could say the same thing. It is not as if these are mystic things, uh, such as all of the Roman Catholic teaching about relics, right? The... um, the, the steps that Jesus went up to um, to appear before Pilate or uh, somebody's tunic or a piece of the cross or something like that. Uh, these superstitious things that people uh, make pilgrimages to see and to fall down before as if to worship. Like, we're not talking about uh, this kind, that kind of thing. And it wouldn't apply to the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil either. Because it seems... Um, that both of these are used sacramentally. Both of them are used by God as signs to depict a greater reality, that greater reality being life and being the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we don't know. It is speculation uh, to say if Adam and Eve would have been able to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if they would have adhered to God's command in the first place. So would it, would it have been God told them not to eat of it? They didn't eat of it. And then God says, because you listened to me, now you can eat of it. I don't think that's the idea at all, because the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is always represented uh, in a negative way. It represents something to which Adam and Eve should not be subjected to. It represents something that they should not partake of. And theoretically, if they would have obeyed God's command, there would never have been a need uh, for them to have a knowledge of good and evil because uh, they would never have participated in evil. And so the idea would have just been, um, they would have been conferred in their righteousness and translated to the uh, heavenly life, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, as we see at the end of Revelation, what Jesus Christ in his obedience affords us. And so the whole idea seems to be um, a negative example in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's because of that and because of the fact that we live 
as a result of them eating of that tree, that we live with a knowledge of good and evil. And our knowledge of good and evil is not just an external, out-there knowledge. It's a knowledge that we know very internal, because we participate in the evil. We know, because we're made in the image of God, the good that we ought to do. We know God is good, and yet we participate in evil. We work against uh, His revelation. We work against who He is. And so when we're rescued, and when we reach the new heavens and the new earth, uh, there seems to be no reason, and there certainly is no mention in the Bible, of the fact that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is going to show up again somewhere. Because that would seem to be another uh, probationary sacrament that wouldn't need to be there anymore. Because we've, we've moved to what that test and what God's command uh, were supposed to achieve for us. Now, in contrast, uh, the tree of life is there. Uh, because we see after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the knowledge uh, of good and evil from that tree that um, they're banished from God's presence. They're banished from Eden. And one of the reasons for that is because God doesn't want them to, uh, to seize the, the fruit from the tree of life and eat that as well. It seems that as they would have done that, um, they would have lived forever and ever in their state of unrighteousness. And of course, that's a theoretical that um, we don't want to go too far into because God didn't allow them to do that. It's not as if uh, maybe they could have because God, uh, being sovereign, is not going to let them do that. And yet, it's fascinating. As we walk through the Bible, even before the New Testament, uh, the tree of life is mentioned to us. One of the places that it's mentioned is in Proverbs, where you have an association between true wisdom, a true fear of the Lord, a true knowledge, the kind of things that we have as Christians um, as being analogous to the tree of life. And then you get further into the Bible eventually, all the way to Revelation, where we see that what Jesus affords for us is a right to eat from the tree of life. All the way at the end of Revelation, you see the tree of life demonstrated. You see it show up. Now, I don't think that the tree of life in this case is a literal tree that has been floating in heaven somewhere, uprooted from Eden, and then transplanted in the new heavens and new earth. Certainly could be, because God is certainly able to do that. But I think that the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were simple fruit trees in the garden. Now, I say simple fruit trees. They were, had to have been glorious because they were trees that existed before there was any sin in the world. But yet, I think that there's no intrinsic value to these trees other than the fact that God uses them as being sacramental, as as signs that speak to the great reality of life and the knowledge of good and evil. And so when you get to Revelation, I don't think that um, the idea is that, well, the, the literal tree from Eden has been transplanted, so what about the literal tree of the knowledge of good and evil from Eden? Where's that one at? Uh, potentially, if it has been kept, it's probably thrown into the lake of fire uh, to be uh, annihilated. Uh, but that's just a speculation on my part. 
Okay. To wrap this episode up, I would like to read for you chapter 33 from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It deals with the last judgment. It's three paragraphs, and I just think it's a great way um, to kind of give a devotional uh, bent to these questions. Because these questions, if we're going to be faithful to uh, the theology of Peter Van Maastricht, um, his argument that all theology is practical, uh, what we just uh, wrestled with are issues of theology. But they are not simply things for us to know. If our pursuit of God was merely a matter of knowledge, then we would be no different from the devil and the fallen angels that we have uh, spoken about on this episode, because they have a knowledge of all the things that we're talking about. They understand, as, uh, as, as devils bound in chains until the final judgment, uh, you think about what the uh, demons who spoke to Jesus uh, were saying to him in the gospel accounts that they knew uh, who he was. They knew that, uh, that the time was coming, or perhaps it was even right then, uh, that he was going to judge them once and for all. Um, so they have a knowledge of these things, uh, but it has no effect on, uh, on their hearts. And it should have an effect on our hearts. Learning these things, uh, as James uh, rebukes us, and merely learning them for a head knowledge uh, makes us no different from the devils. But as Peter Van Maastricht tells us, learning any element of theology um, should inform our minds, but it should also rouse our affections. It should stir our hearts to new obedience, to greater love for God. Theology is meant to be transformative, not just intellectual and informative. And so, with that in mind, let me read this for us from chapter 33 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of the Last Judgment. It says, God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of, of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect, and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day unknown to men, 
that they may shake off all carnal securities and be always watchful, because they know not at what hour the Lord will come, and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with me for this episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Please head on over to betterbiblereading.com for so much more content, articles, even free courses for you uh, to learn and to grow in your knowledge of the Bible. And I pray that everything that you uh, appreciate from this show is not only um, an intellectual exercise, uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but most importantly, that it gets to the heart and God God does his good uh, transforming work for you. Take care and have a great rest of your day.